0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I beg your indulgence this morning and perhaps your forgiveness as well. You see, in my own weakness, I just couldn't face another sermon about Doubting Thomas today. Please don't get the wrong idea. I firmly believe that John's account here of the evening visits of Jesus to the disciples is both completely true and theologically very important. It does provide us with a reliable eyewitness account of the resurrected Jesus and it further testifies to his divine nature as he is able to appear in the midst of the disciples through locked doors and to know of Thomas' doubts when he appears a week later. What's more, this text from John 20 also helps establish the church's mission to the lost as Jesus tells his disciples, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. It also provides the basis and the authority for confession and absolution when the Lord gives the church his Holy Spirit and his words, If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Even so, poor Thomas needs a break, I think. We beat him up every year, and then we try to pick him up and dust him off and say, there, there, Thomas, it's okay, we're no better. We all would like to have proof, every one of us. We doubt God's promises and the word of eyewitnesses lots of times, too. And we only believe by the grace of God and the power of his word, too. But for all of our feigned magnanimity, we don't really do anything positive for Thomas. God did everything that Thomas needed and everything that you need. Even using the record of Thomas and his temporary apostasy to help bolster your faith. Let's instead look today at our lesson from the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Our first lesson, or as I sometimes like to call it, the Gospel according to St. Paul and St. Peter. Yes, yes, I know that it was written by St. Luke, but it is primarily Peter and Paul who throughout this book convey the message of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Before we enter this fifth chapter of the book of Acts, a lot has happened since Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Out of those meeting the necessary qualifications to be apostles, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas, the betrayer. The miraculous events of Pentecost, the wind and the fire and the preaching of the gospel in many recognizable human languages, has led many to faith in Jesus. The believers were gathered together regularly in study and worship, in prayer and in receiving the Lord's Supper. These early Christians shared the blessings of their financial resources with one another. A beggar had been healed, giving Peter yet another opportunity to proclaim the gospel about Jesus. Peter and John were arrested. They had given bold witness to the person, life, and work of Jesus, and had given that both to the people and to the Jewish ruling council. And despite many threats and many, many obstacles, the Spirit had led the apostles to continue preaching God's word. As chapter 5 begins, we have an unfortunate incident, that of Ananias and Sapphira. Having been blessed with income that was intended for the support of their fellow believers, this couple had held some of it back for themselves. Perhaps they were afraid to fully surrender God's gifts back to him. For their deception and for their lack of faith, they were struck down in death They are gone, but the work of the church continued. Which leads us to the circumstances of our lesson for today. You see, immediately before our text, Luke records that Peter and the other apostles were healing many people and leading many more to faith in Christ. The high priest and many of the Sadducees were outraged with jealousy, and they had the apostles arrested. Specified names were not given for the apostles here, so we might conclude that this time it was not just John and Peter who were locked up, but the entirety of Jesus' chosen few. But then in a miracle that is symbolic of the freedom from sin's oppression that Jesus has also given to us, one of God's angels comes in the darkness of night and opens up the doors of that jail. And rather than skulking off in fear to avoid any more danger or confrontation, the apostles are instructed by this angel to return to the temple and to continue preaching, which in fact they did. Now the Sadducees had planned to bring the apostles from the jail to face the entire ruling council, but instead they were discovered to be teaching in the temple courts, Once more, the apostles are gathered together by the Sanhedrin soldiers, but a bit more carefully and respectfully, this time for fear of the people. Behind closed doors, however, not much really changes. No doubt a prototype for politicians the world over, the high priest attempts to use his position of authority to intimidate and to deflect accountability. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now the smart-aleck part of me wishes that Peter and the other apostles had 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 replied to this, So what? You betcha, dude, and no kidding, genius. But the apostles didn't say that because they are being led by the Holy Spirit, not by my darker inclinations. Instead, they confront the Sanhedrin with far more powerful replies. We must obey God rather than men. And then they recount the facts that despite the sinful execution that these fearful men had foisted upon Jesus, God had resurrected Jesus, and that the apostles had witnessed this and had witnessed His ascension. Now they were proclaiming that in Jesus, and in Jesus alone, repentance and the forgiveness of sins were given. They also rightly claimed that the Holy Spirit testified to these same things and had been given to those of the true faith. The reaction of the Sanhedrin was predictable, for the apostles' words, while they were rather polite, were a ringing condemnation of all that they were and all that they had done, The Sanhedrin's authority to speak for God had been called into question, and even their authority over the apostles had been rejected. They were accused of the murder of Jesus and of complete ignorance of the Messiah, to whom the scriptures that they had all so carefully studied had given clear witness. And then to top it all off, these uneducated men claimed that they had been given a special revelation and special gifts by God. St. Luke uses the words furious here to describe their emotions, but that was probably insufficient. Yes, there was fury, and yes, they did want to put the apostles to death, partly because it would rid them of having to be confronted daily by the apostles preaching in the temple courts, which made clear the all-true accusations that they, the spiritual leaders of Israel, had blown it. Murderous rage might be a more apt and accurate description. And what might have happened if these leaders had impulsively acted upon their instincts? Would those soldiers have obeyed them? Would the apostles fight back, perhaps even injuring or killing some of the Sanhedrin? When the word of killings reached the people, many of whom now fully believed in the apostles' account of Jesus and had seen the miraculous powers they'd been given, Would there be an uprising far worse than any the city had experienced before? No good could come of it. Cooler heads were needed. In steps Gamaliel. Not a Sadducee, the high priest party, but rather a Pharisee. A scholar who knew God's word very well. So well, in fact, that a certain other Pharisee, now known as Saul, but then later as Paul, would be one of his prized pupils. The wisdom shown by Gamaliel that day could only have come from God. Perhaps like Caiaphas' earlier prophecy that it would be better for one man to die for the people, Gamaliel's speech, too, was inspired prophecy. First, Gamaliel calms down the scene by having the objects of the anger, the apostles, removed from the room. Then he offers a history lesson, speaking in the manner of a learned teacher, which of course he was. Gamaliel reminds the assembly that in the past several decades there had been many so-called messiahs who claimed to have been sent to rescue Israel. Some of these had recruited and had rallied large groups of followers and had posed a threat to the position of the Sanhedrin and to the authority of Rome. But each of these impostors had in turn been struck down. Their followers had been scattered, and soon their movement had ceased to exist. Gamaliel's advice, then? Not so much one of don't worry, be happy, but rather he suggests a non-confrontational approach. Let the apostles of this Jesus fellow have their day. Even let them smoke out those who are disloyal to the Jewish leadership. If they're frauds, it will become all too apparent, and when the Romans have finally had enough of their shenanigans, then they'll act to crush the movement, and it will die out just as so many have before and just as their leader already has. If, on the other hand, God is behind these miracles and their teachings and message, who are we to interfere with it? All we'll get for our trouble is problems with the people and a fight with Yahweh. Gamaliel made good sense, and so it's easy to see why he had the respect of his peers and of the people. Even so, the Sanhedrin was not going to let the apostles walk off as if their actions had no consequence at all. They wanted to demonstrate their authority and have the satisfaction of seeing it exercised. <clears throat> and so the apostles were beaten before being released, and they were, they were warned very sternly to keep quiet about Jesus. A little bit of parting intimidation, no doubt. Yes, the disciples had run off in Gethsemane, and Peter had even lied about knowing Jesus. Yet after fearing him who could make wind and waves obey, after fearing the man who would walk to them across the water, after even asking to be excused from Jesus' presence after he told them when and where and how to catch a large quantity of fish, And after seeing him heal many, many diseases and even raise several people from the dead, himself included, the apostles are not going to be so easily cowed. Instead, they rejoice in their beatings and their suffering, knowing that by it they are even more tightly bound to Jesus. Jesus had experienced far worse, they knew, and by his suffering he had blessed them and he had changed their entire outlook on life and reality. Now it was the Apostles' sacred duty and mission to change that outlook for others, others who were still laboring and suffering under the burden of their sins. And so they did. And so they have. Remember what the Apostles had told the Sanhedrin at the beginning about Jesus' Messiahship, that God had exalted him to his right hand that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Jesus wasn't a threat to the Sanhedrin, nor were the apostles in terms of their earthly position. No, the threat of Jesus' Messiahship was to each and every member of the council individually as sinners confronting the reality of their inability to truly keep God's commandments, to truly love the Lord with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And that's not a threat that we like to consider either or a reality that we like to confront. We really are thinking about it. We, we like our own positions on the Sanhedrin. The ruling council of our own lives. Calling the shots. Deciding what is right and what is true. Throwing our ideas and our weight around. But when we have to face, face the harsh words of God's law, then we deny and we deflect. We lash out or we hide. Do you like hearing those words? words that question, words that accuse. What is this you have done? God asked in the garden. You are the man! Nathan shouted at David when the king accused a made-up individual of being sinful and unclean. And finally, this Jesus whom you have killed by hanging Him on a tree. None of these seem pleasant and None of them are. Yet for each of us, they are necessary. We must hear them so that we are accused, so that we are crushed, so we are prepared for what follows. The sweet, loving, and infinitely beautiful words of the Gospel that this Jesus whom you hung on a cross and killed also killed your sins there. And in raising Him to life once more, God showed that He accepted that sacrifice and has given you a place at His table also. Gamaliel the Pharisee might not have realized that day what sort of impact his guidance to let the apostles go would have on the future development and the faith that saves, nor on the eventual discrediting of Judaism as the faith of the one true God. Yet his words were influential to sway those who would have sought to destroy the fledgling church, and they are very important to history and to us. We too can say with confidence if that purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to stop it. 2,000 years later, we see and we know and we trust that it is indeed of God and not of men. For all of the intimidation and the floggings and worse that the church has endured, it yet survives. It remains your lifeboat in this world, the place where God lifts you up from the shipwreck of your life and carries you through the baptismal waters, waters that can sometimes be rough with the minor trials and the trivial sufferings that we whose lives are connected with Christ suffer. But rejoice. Rejoice that you too have been found worthy of suffering and disgrace for the name of Jesus. Not worthy in yourself, mind you, but made worthy through the repentance and forgiveness and faith given to you in His name. And day after day, whether it be in temple courts or from house to house, join the apostles. Yes, join Thomas too, a doubter no more. Join them in the never-ending teaching and proclamation of the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And in His holy name, Amen.